The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. In 1944 and 45, a group of conscientious vegetarians in London came to realize that eggs and dairy cause the same suffering and slaughter as meat. These non dairy vegetarians eventually became vegans. We're now a force to be reckoned with around the world and nowhere more vitally and energetically than here in London, where we're recording this special episode of the Main Street Vegan Program. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. You are a host of Main Street Vegan, and if you want to know more about everything that we do, you can check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. And right now, I am so excited to be speaking with two young men who are literally changing the world, changing the world for animals, and I would say taking great strides towards saving this planet. I'm here with Robbie Lockie, who moved to London from Zimbabwe in 2000 to further his career in design and media. He managed the website Rebuild for Veganuary and co-produced the documentary Short Swine with the UK animal rights organization Viva. He has since co-founded Plant Based News, which initiated World Plant Milk Day coming up again on August 22nd, and in 2018... Plant-Based News received PETA's prestigious Compassionate Business Award. And also in this wonderful studio full of vegans is Earthling Ed. Yes, yes, we finally got him. Ed Winters, known to some 200,000 YouTube followers as Earthling Ed, is co-founder of Surge, the animal rights organization that founded the official Animal Rights March, and that also is coming right up August 26 second. And Earthling Ed also produced the 2017 documentary, Land of Hope and Glory. Not busy enough? Well, I guess not, because last fall he opened Unity Diner in London, where he lives, and Unity Diner is a nonprofit vegan cafe with all proceeds benefiting animals. And in February of this year, he launched his own podcast, The Disclosure, 
Welcome, Robbie. Welcome, Ed. Wow, there's a lot of vegan power in this room. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Victoria. It's well, good to it's, be here. It is absolutely amazing to be here. So I think people know who you are, but I always am directing these words, these episodes to some non-vegan who just happens by. So let's just talk to those people and each of you, I'll start with you, Robbie. Tell us who you are and what you're excited about. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm the co-founder and creative director of Plant Based News, um, the online vegan uh, news education entertainment platform. Um, as you said in the intro, um, I came over to England uh, a few years ago and kind of came to this country to further my career in design. I've been vegan seven years. Um, and in that time, I kind of felt like I needed to do something with my skills. I wasn't sure what. And I met a good friend, uh, Klaus Mitchell, who we then formed Plum Based News together as a platform. And I've kind of been pouring my heart and soul and my kind of creativity into growing the platform and reaching as many people as possible and trying to convince them that a plant-based diet is the healthiest, kindest, most environmentally form uh, of uh, eating. And you're doing a great job of it. Thank you. <laughs> and Plant-Based News and also Bright Zine, Laura Callan's wonderful magazine, are the reason that I'm here. You brought uh, filmmaker Thomas Jackson and me over for the UK premiere of A Prayer for Compassion, which was wonderful. And we had a surprise extra person on that panel, Earthling Ed, which was so cool. And now you're here. And I'm too old to be starstruck, but I'm allowed. So Ed, <laughs> tell us what you're up to. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for, for having me as well. It's a real privilege to be on the Main Street Vegan program. So what I'm up to, I, I mean, I've been in America for about April and I was doing some college tours there, speaking at some Ivy League colleges. Um, and so since I've been back, it's, it's more about kind of organizing through all the, the footage I've got there and planning for the, the animal rights march that was taking place for the fourth year in a row this year um, in London. So a lot of preparation and planning is going into that kind of thing. Um, and we're just excited, really, I guess, for, for what the future holds and um, and, and for what we're all achieving as a movement. And I think there's a lot of exciting things happening at the moment. Um, we're just trying to capitalize on all this momentum that seems to be exponentially growing, I suppose. And part of that is because of what you guys have done already. You've both managed to take the Internet and use it for so much good. I know, Robbie, you and I were talking earlier that in some ways the internet can be used for not very good. And yet you've both really exploited this medium to make veganism something that everybody recognizes. Tell me about that and, and feel free to talk among yourselves and just let us know what we can all do with our little Facebook accounts and our little cameras in the living room. It's a very interesting question. I think Ed must get asked this as well. How do you do it? How do you get people to listen? How do you grow your platform? For me, the most important thing is consistency and um, and a style, really. Choose your own style. Choose your own way of speaking, where you create your videos and, and create them consistently, whether that's poems or images or photographs or articles, whatever it is, it's very important to put out consistent content because as you create that consistency, people will begin to become used to it. A bit like a TV show or radio show, people anticipate it and that's the most important thing i say to people is even if you you know we all started with one follower didn't we and then we added 10 and then 100 and then a thousand um and engagement as well talking to people answering comments you know trying to connect a lot of people want that big following but they're not prepared to put in the time to connect with the people and to kind of like share the stories and talk so i'm really big on community i'm always sharing other people's stuff and talking to people engaging with people and i think that's a vital part of getting your message out there 
I think the, I think one thing that social media does so wonderfully is it is it taps into younger people, which is kind of great for us because it's the young people predominantly that are shifting towards veganism. So we kind of enter into this kind of perfect storm scenario almost where we're, we're using this this kind of force that's targeted at young people for for a movement that's also heavily you know fueled by young people. And I think that's what has really aided us, I suppose, is just targeting those demographics and, and producing content that hopefully is is somewhat um, appealing to, to the younger people and gives them... I mean, I don't know about you, but I think from a YouTube perspective, what people's appetites has changed a lot. I mean, when I used to watch YouTube several years ago, it was vlogs and it was just kind of mundane stuff. But now there seems to be an appetite for content that's more intellectually mm. challenging. Like I a think. journalism, isn't it? More yeah. like, a, like exposing exposés and exposing the truth or revealing the truth i think because i think a lot of people are shocked by what they see and when you reveal these truths to people they feel um outraged and they want to share it or comment or like so yeah. i always say to people that's what we're going to do we've got to, we've got to try to provoke something provoke an emotion of some kind provoke anger or frustration or or something get people to feel something and then they'll be driven to to talk about it or share it <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's another thing about social media is your reach isn't confined. So, you know, you share an article or I put something out and it could be seen by someone on the other side of the world. And, and what that really does is it opens up veganism. So it's not just, say, a London centric thing where you're leafleting in London. All of a sudden this message can be seen by anyone really anywhere in the world. And so it just makes veganism more accessible and it helps it grow internationally, which I think is very powerful and unique to the situation that we're all in in this, you know, this current age. So I think of you, Ed, as YouTube being your primary medium. So is that the case? And how did you start? And how did you build? Yeah, I'd say YouTube is, is kind of my favorite. I think the community there is, is so strong and, and, and loyal. Um, I also think it's a really great platform for, for conversation. Um, and it can really open up your message to people that normally wouldn't see it through the algorithms. And um, so it becomes more accessible, I think. Um, it's a hard one to start. And I remember when I first began, I was so nervous. And I sat down to film my first few videos and I was trembling and I had sweaty palms and I was clammy. And I was like, I'm never going to succeed at this ever. And so I shot the first video and watched it back and was like, not a chance. So deleted all the footage, sat down, did it again. And I guess it's just a process and, you know, there's always room for improvement, but we can't be too hard on ourselves. So I think just, just go for it. It's a wonderful thing to do because you do it at your own time, at your own pace. If you don't like something, you can reshoot it and just upload something that feels authentic for you. Cause I think that's what people want in the current age is authenticity. Mm. You know, we look on, on the news or at our politicians or anyone, and there's just a lack of authenticity in society. So if you can present yourself in a genuine way, I think people will respond to that. And, and I think Robbie said earlier, play to your strengths and, and do what you like and what you enjoy rather than trying to model yourself on, on someone else, I think. So you have a reputation, Ed, as, as being, I read somewhere somebody called you the Jesus of the animal rights movement or something like that, right. partly because of the hair. It's the hair. But, <laughs> yeah. but you are very kind to people and, and very accepting. And I know that's really hard for a lot of vegans. So how do we build more of that? It's a funny thing because when I first started, I was quite misanthropic and very angry. I mean, I think it's natural. One of the big questions I always get asked is, how do you get through the angry phase? I'm like, it just takes a bit of time and a bit of patience, but also a bit of empathy. And what I realized is if I'm going to go out and advocate for the animals, 
then I need to do what's effective for the animals. And pointing the finger and blaming and saying it's your fault and you this and you that, it doesn't help people. I mean, we know from just basic psychology that people don't like to be told what to do. So it's ineffective. And and so if we're going to advocate in an, in an ineffective way, then that's not good for the animals. So it was more for me a realization that if I wanted to, to walk the walk in terms of say I'm an activist and say I'm an advocate, I have to do that in, in a way that's that's right and that's right for me. So I just take a bit of time to, to educate yourself and, and to, to learn about all these different arguments because I think what can upset us often in conversations with non-vegans is they say something and we don't know how to respond. They'll say, you know, circle of life or food chain, just an argument that we hear all the time. And it makes us frustrated because we know it's not genuine and we know that it's a poor excuse to hurt animals, but we don't know how to actually explain that properly. So I think just taking some time to, to sit with yourself and to learn these different excuses and to learn how to respond means that when we're in these heightened states of, of potential emotion, we can just take a deep breath and, and come at it from a logical and, and um, pragmatic way, I think. Ed has a great uh, playlist on his YouTube called 30 Days, 30 Excuses, oh, yeah. which is fantastic. So if you want to know everything you need to know about how to deal with at least 30 of the excuses, please visit Ed's YouTube channel. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so in the States, the biggest one is where do you get your protein? Do you have a different one over here that's maybe number one? It's primarily that. And I think also uh, people say, you know, we've always eaten animals. Why should we stop eating them? Um, as in culture, you know, appeal to culture, that that's kind of the, the strongest because, you know, food and culture is so deeply intertwined. Uh, you know, people spend a lot of time with food and family and friends and they're so interconnected. And often when people, uh, we talk to people about quitting meat, it's not really about the meat. It's about the emotional bond they have with that food. They don't see an animal. Obviously, they see, you know, Christmas dinners and they see um, breakfast with grandma and they see, you know, they don't. That's not what people are connected to. And that's why, you know, talking about the angry phase of being vegan, I think once you start to understand the psychology and the relationship people have with food, it's not so much about the animals because it's because people don't see an animal. But once they do, they obviously become vegan. They disconnect from that kind of way of thinking. And we have to really um, understand that psychology and work with it, not against it. Because I think if we work against it, we're really just pushing more people away, essentially. I know you're very interested in the psychology of this and the neuropsychology. Mm. So can you explain a little bit about some of the brain chemistry that mm. might make somebody vegan? Yes. So so human beings are equipped with many wonderful faculties, uh, some that are great, some that are not so great. But uh, there's a neurotransmitter called neuropronephrine, which actually is a part of the flight or fl fight or flight mechanism. So when a person feels attacked or uh, they, someone's coming at you or trying to change your beliefs, neuropronephrine levels actually increase in the brain which actually causes narrow-mindedness and people sort of shut down you could you could call it kind of the walls going up essentially um, but when a person feels safe or they feel they, they can trust you neuropronephrine levels actually go down uh, ed often uses the um, socratic method when you talk to a person ask questions rather than making statements you allow a person to move into a state of trust so it's very very important when advocating to a stranger specifically who doesn't know you to always start with common ground, always talk about things that you have in common. Maybe talk about the weather, maybe talk about what you had for lunch, maybe talk about did you have a, a pet or kind of ease into the conversation because there is a biological process that goes on in the brain that protects our core beliefs. 
So if you, if we didn't have these mechanisms, I could say, Ed, go jump off that roof. It'll be really good for humanity. And you go, okay, and you do it because there'd be nothing protecting your core beliefs, your self-preservation, right? And your core beliefs or culture and tradition are deeply entrenched within you as a human being because it's part of your childhood, it's part of your programming, right? But when you build trust and rapport with a person, those kind of defense mechanisms come down and allows you in, basically. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. That. Yeah, that's wonderful. So for each of you, just because everybody always wants to hear other people's vegan stories, how did you get from over there to here? Well, um, I had many health problems uh, and uh, issues with gut problems and uh, rashes and aches and pains around seven, eight years ago. Um, and I was looking for the answer. I didn't know what a vegan was at the time. I thought vegetarians were irritating. I didn't really know anything about the vegan movement. Um, I think the only kind of vegetarians I'd seen were probably on television from, from America. Um, and I was on this this journey to try and solve my health problems. I saw many doctors and no one would help me um, or could help me. And I started eating um, a more green diet, as they called it, or an alkaline diet. I started to feel better. Uh, and then um, a friend of mine said, you know, you really need to watch these documentaries. And I watched Food Inc. at Forks Over Knives, learned more and more about food and nutrition and the farming system and how destructive it was. And then I watched Earthlings, um, which another friend recommended. Um, and it just, strangely, if within a few hours of watching that film, I heard a scream and a screeching outside the front of my house. And I ran outside and I saw the neighbor in her car with all her kids a few paces up. And this beautiful white Persian cat was on the tarmac in, in front of our house in a huge pool of ruby red blood. And I knew the cat. She lived nearby. Um, she used to hang out in our garden. So I knew her as an individual. And I went over to her and I could see that she was suffering. Um, and, you know, people always say if an animal's suffering, you should put it out of its misery. But I just couldn't do it. I could not bring myself to do it. And I felt such like immense pain and torture seeing this animal suffering. And in a way, I had this sort of religious moment where I was the cat and she was me. I kind of switched places with her, felt her fear and her and her suffering. And I held her and her, her life slipped, you know, from her body whilst I was holding her. And then and in that moment, I had this aha moment. This this is this is who I am now. I'm a person who know who no longer wants to be a part of harming animals. And that's a condensed version, obviously, of the story. But that's essentially the moment I became vegan. I was like, this is the moment I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to to kind of like spreading the message of uh, plant-based eating and animals and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's six and a half years ago now. So were you already a Buddhist or did that come later? I was already a Buddhist. Um, and in fact, actually, that reinforced the decision because I thought as a Buddhist, I'm going and talking about compassion and kindness, yet I'm still eating animals. It just doesn't make any sense. And the more I dull, dull deeper into the kind of teachings of the Buddha, the you know, the Buddha Shakyamuni Buddha, he talked about the fact that if when we kill animals or eat animals, it kills or extinguishes the seeds of compassion within us. Um, and I just, all these thoughts are running around my head and I thought to myself, this is the right decision. This is why have I not thought of this before? So that's the moment I changed everything. That is a very dramatic story. It's quite dramatic. <laughs> it wow. felt, it felt very dramatic at the time because I was, I was going through a lot physically with my health. I was suffering a lot. Um, and emotionally as well, I was really questioning my my religious beliefs, being part of a Buddhist community who still ate animals. I was thinking about all these things all the time. I hadn't made the switch. But then obviously Earthlings was a catalyst because it's such a beautifully told story. It's a horror it's a horror show, but it's a it's a beautifully told story and it really gets you thinking 
about our choices as human beings. And you, Ed? Yeah, so I've been vegan now just over four years, uh, coming up four and a half, I suppose. And so it was for me, it was this strange thing. I grew up, as everyone did, in houses, the households that ate meat and we used to always laugh and mock vegetarians in my home. My, my, you know, my family were, were, were big on the mocking. And when my it's, it's a strange thing. When my earliest memories of being in school, I think I was like year seven or year eight, so I guess like thirteen maybe. And we were in an English literature class, and we were reading this book. And I don't know why, but my teacher asked about being vegetarian, and I put my hand up in the air. I was quite brash when I was younger, so I put my hand up in the air, and she was like, "Yes, Edward." And I said, "All vegetarians are pale, weak, and skinny," which is. I, I always say this to like it's kind of ironic because like I was one of the palest and weakest in the class, right? And you know, so, so it was a kind of a, a sense of irony that was lost on young Edward, I suppose. And anyway, it's, it's funny that that sticks out in my head, but it kind of gives you an idea that eating meat was just something I thought we had to do. And then for well, actually, when was it? May two thousand thirteen or May two thousand fourteen? I think I came across this um, this story on the BBC, and it was about a, a truck carrying six thousand chickens crashing on the way to a slaughterhouse. And I was really troubled by the story. I, I was reading it and the journalist was describing, I think in total 1,500 birds died on the impact, but there were hundreds more that were alive on the side of the road and they were they were bleeding. So they were mutilated with broken bones, broken wings. And so in that moment, I realized that animals could suffer, which seems like such a simple realization, but I never thought about the animals I consumed suffering. So in my fridge, there was chicken products from the night before a KFC, which I used to eat all the time. And I felt like a hypocrite and it really sat uneasy with me. And I thought, my goodness, this is a weird feeling. And I kind of made this simple switch in my head that if I didn't change and I didn't stop eating meat, that I was complicit in something that I now knew to be wrong, which I'd never really you know, acknowledged to be wrong before. And so I went and was a vegetarian, unfortunately, not vegan at that point. And I was one of these vegetarians that thought vegans were crazy people. Like, I just didn't understand it. I thought, like, vegans were militant and they were extreme and they were just... I didn't understand it at all. And I remember my girlfriend was like, we should go vegan. And I was like, I'm never going vegan. Like, what are you talking about? Why would anyone do this? And then one day she saw on her Instagram someone promoting Earthlings, the documentary. And so she's like, we've got to watch it. We've got to watch it. And I put it off and put it off and put it off because I knew it was going to be horrible. And so one morning I woke up and... She was like, we're going to watch Earthlings. So you can either get out of bed or you can watch it with me. And now I'm not very good on mornings. So like staying in bed was a good option for me. So I stayed in bed, thankfully, and watched the documentary. And afterwards, I just cried, you know, just cried. And I had a little companion animal called Rupert. He was a little hamster. And I sat next to him and he was running on my hands, my arms after I'd watched the, the documentary. And I and I realized that he was an individual. So, you know, he was a, he's had his own personality. He loved broccoli but hated kale you know which is quite similar to me which is quite sweet and, and I thought well, hang on a minute if, if Rupert the hamster has you know the ability to be a, a person with his own individual characteristics and likes and dislikes then by default all the animals that I pay to be exploited and all the varying industries that exploit them are also must therefore be the same so that was what caused me to be vegan and was the, the catalyst for my, for my change was seeing that documentary Wow. I don't know if the most shocking part of that was that you've only been vegan for four years because you've done so much, but also just this, this beautiful subtlety of what it took to, to get you here. So what were you doing before this? Were you on the road to being corporate something or something Rather else? Funnily, I, I went to university to study film and TV. I was going to be the next Steven Spielberg in my eyes, rather rather foolishly of course and so I came out of that and I did some freelance work and then 
I did dog walking and I did like a little bit of a teaching thing. I was just really lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I'd be a media teacher and like teach in schools and, but I was just completely lost. And, and so, you know, it just kind of worked out well that I could use the skills I learned from university to pursue something that I really cared about. And so in that sense, I kind of fell on my feet a little bit, fortunately, but yeah, I was just kind of a lost, lost soul, not really sure what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. Well, you were found. I love this idea of letting life lead you. I've done that on on this trip this this week in London because I was really stressed and burned out when I got here. And I've just let things happen. And it occurred to me that I'm, I'm letting like the great beneficence of the universe be my concierge. <laughs> And just sweet things can happen that way. You know, my my iPhone broke and I had to go to an Apple store and they fixed it immediately. And then they said, and we're doing a video class in five minutes. So I stayed for that. And then the next part was a walking class. So I got in a little bit of video and a little bit of touring. And it, it's, it's wonderful when you can just let uh, life send you where it's supposed to. So... Um, Right now, we've got uh, three minutes before we go to break. I am fascinated by what causes influence. A lot of people are out there online saying what they're saying, but the two of you are influencers. What do you do differently? What, from each other or just from... from the rest of the world? I think it's that psychology, you know, it's making sure that you package the message up in such a way that it doesn't scare people or frighten people. Um, I have a bit of, we have a rule of 95% health, wellness, nutrition, and 5% suffering, even though the world is actually the other way around. It's 95% suffering and 5% kind of kindness and uh, goodness. You know, there, there seems to be, a, you know, things seem to be on their head. But when it comes to communicating with people, we're always trying to make sure the majority of the message is non-threatening and kind of positive, or it's kind of focused on the individual, you know, the individual human who's observing it. And then occasionally you switch in or you blend in something that is a lot more, um, what's the word, shocking to people. And I think that's allowed us to keep a, a, our audience the way it has and continues to grow. For example, we put a video out recently, which showed a small piglet on the floor of a factory farm. She was, they called her Jasmine, and she was sort of shaking and looking terrified. And that was it one minute long. And it's had 300,000, almost 400,000 views in the last few days, um, because it's so simple and powerful, but it also stops people in their tracks. But if we share that type of video every single day, people would switch off to it, they become numb to it, and they wouldn't they would scroll past it. Oh, another animal suffering. So I think it's very important that even though we'd love to be shaking people and saying, no, wake up, you know, the animals are suffering, the earth is dying. We have to, again, work with human psychology and, and start with the we'll focus on the individual most of the time. And then occasionally, once people are in the door and they trust you, you kind of, I don't like to say this, but sucker punch them <laughs> with the hard and painful truth of um, you know, the, the suffering that goes on because of people's food choices. And I feel that, that I feel from our perspective, that's been quite uh, effective. It makes perfect sense because we can get so numb, you know, when you see the horrible things over and over again. And people are selfish, too. I think we really all want to have good lives and nothing wrong with that. So we may as well be happy and healthy while we are saving the animals and saving the planet. So everybody listening, hope you're loving this because we're going to be back right after these messages. More with Robbie Lockie and Earthling Ed. Stay with us.
We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. This programming is made possible through the generous donations of listeners like you. If you feel inspired by this programming, we invite you to contribute. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make your offering today. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Eric Butterworth. So we're always into this thing called time. It's very hard to free ourselves from the pressure and the limitations and the boundary lines which time sets down. So that in partial experience, in human consciousness, we have what we call deadlines, which are an abomination in human experience. But in the whole of things, we have only alive lines. We live in eternity, and time is always now. In the eternal of you, there is a completed whole, there's a finished kingdom, and all that you do and seek to do is always complete in infinite mind. And as we say, it can be done in a twinkling of a second, or it can be done in hours, it can be done in days, or we can stew and fret about it all of our lives. In God, it is now done. To hear more talks from Eric Butterworth, visit truthunity.net. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 816-969-2000. If you're looking to deepen your spiritual journey, Unity Magazine is your go-to source for information and inspiration. It's been beautifully redesigned and packed with interesting articles and compelling interviews from today's spiritual thought leaders. You'll find science, spirituality, and healing with a look at Eastern philosophies, meditation, as well as completely new ways to interpret the Bible. Plus, reviews on the latest spiritual books and music. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Find the truth within yourself that heals, reveals, guides, and transforms. Tune in to Reverend Galen McDowell every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms. Take a deep dive into the practical aspects of new thought teaching, starting with forgiveness, spiritual healing, prosperity, and more. Reverend McDowell welcomes some amazing guests, and topics can range from reincarnation to the Bible to science. Big plans to join the show here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I'm having a wonderful conversation here in London 
with Robbie Lockie of Plant-Based News. You can find that at plantbasednews.org and Earthling Ed, whom you can find certainly on YouTube and also at earthlinged.org. So just before the break, we were talking about influence and what it takes online and elsewhere to really get the vegan message out in a meaningful way. So Ed, your turn. How do you do that? I mean, that's a, a very interesting question, I think. And one thing about what Robbie and Klaus did at Plant Based News is they is they created a platform that I think people really wanted, you know, that positivity. And I, I look on Plant Based News and it fills me with kind of hope for the future. And I think that's what vegans really are after. And I guess maybe in terms of what I do, it, it's something, it has a similar effect, but in a different way in the sense of, a lot of people, as we were saying before, do feel angry, but they don't they don't want to harbor anger. And I guess we look at activism historically, and a lot of it involves kind of heavy protesting, kind of things that maybe are fueled by the anger in a way where the anger becomes predominant in it. Not not always, of course. There's been flyering and lots of great outreach that's always happened. And I think that people maybe want to be an activist and they want to advocate, but they've always been worried that maybe it requires something of them they don't want to provide or they feel would be unhealthy if they were consumed by it. And and what I hope maybe is that the way that I advocate and the way that I, I talk kind of shows people that you can do so in a way that isn't intimidating for yourself and doesn't have to end in conflict and in arguments. You know, a lot of vegans that they're only kind of experience of talking about veganism is arguing with their parents or with their friends and it creates this really negative concept of what being an advocate can mean and so there's a fear that you'll have the same response if you go and speak to people at universities or on the streets for example and so i hope that maybe what i do resonates with people because it shows you can do so in a way that's productive is effective but also doesn't strain you emotionally and in fact maybe does the opposite takes that burden of anger potentially off your shoulders in a productive way so Hopefully that's why my influence has been somewhat of a positive for people and why it's resonated is the sense of you can have these conversations and you can do so in a way that makes you feel fulfilled and you don't have to worry about shouting and, and fights and arguments. That, that, that's always been my main goal, I think, and that's what I hope people can take from the work that I do. I think they are by the thousands. <laughs> so we're all working so hard. You know, we talked about the early vegans back in the 1940s. There were animal welfare people long before that. Humans, some humans have cared about animals for a very long time. So from your point of view, both of you, what is the state of animals right now for all this work we're doing, for all of the social media that's out there for animal rights, for veganism, are animals better off now than they were 10 years ago? This is a difficult question. And I, and I, and I, I think there's this, probably this um, misconception that because veganism is doing so well, that obviously means that the animals are doing, are doing really well. And, and I wish I could say that's true. But if, if, firstly, if we look across the world, the amount of animals being bred and killed for consumption is higher than it's ever been. You know, look at China and India and places like this where it's, it's rising all the time. And also even closer to home in, in the UK, there was an article released at the beginning of this year that said that due to the rise of flexitarianism and the reduction of meat, the amount of eggs being sold is higher than I think it's been in, in decades, at least before um, the salmonella crisis, um, which in effect means that more animals are potentially being killed now, more now than they were before, because you think of the grinding and the maceration of, of male chicks. And if people are consuming more, you know, potentially more cheese products, if they're reducing meat, you have more animals killed in that sense and so i think that 
undeniably what's happening is veganism is rising exponentially, which is, which is only a good thing. But as a consequence of that, we have a rise in things like flexitarianism and, and reducitarianism, which leads to more animals potentially being killed because of a vegetarian diet. And, and of course, globally as well, we see the rise of meat. So not necessarily, but it's also not all doom and gloom. More animals might be being killed now in, in the UK than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it's because of the change that's happening. And change will always be incremental and it will never be kind of a, you know, a smooth journey forward. It's going to have bumps and back steps and all these, these kind of um, hiccups along the way. And so I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing in terms of progression i think it's a positive thing it's just a difficult thing to get our heads around now but but it shows that the trend is changing and so we should be conscious and aware that things are changing but not as well as we'd like to but at the same time we shouldn't be downbeat in the sense of this all terrible and pessimistic i think it's more of a rallying cry to keep pushing that vegan message and not to settle for anything less and that's a big debate in veganism is how do we advocate what do we ask for is veganism too extreme but actually, if we keep on that vegan message, we can absolutely support people in every step that they make, but we should never settle for something less than veganism. I think that's what we can take from what's happening at the moment. And so it's not better for animals, but it's a sign that things are changing and will become better for animals. So I, I do want to get to Robbie with that question, but I want to ask you, Ed, this thing about not settling. It's very difficult in dealing with people because we want to encourage every change that they make. So what do you do with your not settling argument when you're talking to an individual who says, I just bought a bottle of oat milk? Yeah, and I think you say, I think you support everything that everyone does. So if you have a conversation with someone and they say, like my neighbor, for instance, I was having a chat with him the other day and he said, actually, I don't buy red meat anymore. And so, I, well, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Like, I think that's a really positive step. Tell me, you know, why, why are you not buying red meat? And he says, well, it's an environmental thing, but also, you know, it's an ethical thing because cows are so beautiful and wonderful. And well, there's your stepping stone to, to talk about, well, have you considered the environmental impact of, of dairy? Have you considered the, how animals like chickens that produce eggs, are, you know, in terms of their moral consideration should be granted the same kind of consideration? And so I think by supporting people, it validates where they're at, but you but by not settling, what I mean is don't say that's enough. Don't say, okay, that's great. You can stop there. Say that's wonderful. But have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Have you looked into this aspect as well? And so I think we have this hardline approach sometimes where it's like, if you're not vegan, then I won't, you know, I'm not going to give you any time of day or any praise. And people might say I'm vegetarian and you go, well, that's not good enough. I think that's the wrong approach to take. I think you say that's wonderful, but have you considered? That's that's kind of what I mean by not settling, I suppose. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. So, Robbie, animals and how they're doing. Not much more to say than what Ed said, but I think, you know, there is a within the vegan bubble this understanding that things are changing rapidly, that we're winning. You know, it may feel like that on the inside, but as uh, on the inside of our bubble, but as, as Ed's pointed out, you know, globally, meat, meat consumption is actually rising. And yeah, it's a bit of a, a miss. What's the word? A miss, a miss. It's a bit of a misunderstanding, I think, with people when they see 23 million flexitarians, people assume that that means they're going to be a lot less animals killed. Um, but I think when you look at the way people are eating, things are changing. Like the plant based food sector in the UK is worth some 600 million pounds now a year. So there is a huge demand for this way of eating and i think it will continue to change i think like ed said we have to keep working within the movement to kind of keep pushing those choices keep pushing people to make better and better choices uh, and it's going to take some time unfortunately this isn't going to change in one lifetime in one lifetime i don't think 
Well, let's talk about the food because there is a lot of happy news in that sector. Mm. What are you seeing over here? We're seeing such a huge increase in uh, vegan ready meals. I think a lot of people live increasingly busy lives in the West and they want to be able to access food that's affordable, that's tasty and that's healthier. Um, and these ready meals are popping up all over the place. A lot of the supermarkets are producing their own products and some like waitress have their, an entire vegan aisle. And people say, oh, but you know, isn't junk food the same as any other junk food? It's all processed. And the, and the answer is yes, but it's a spectrum. I'd rather people ate, you know, vegan burgers than beef burgers you know i'd rather people ate uh, dairy free uh, ice cream than you know my ice cream made from from cows cow's milk so i think it is a spectrum ultimately you know from a health perspective we want healthy happy vegans in the world but if people are just not eating animals or drinking milk for me that's you know it's a good step <laughs> I've been just overwhelmed as I walk, particularly in the West End, outside every kind of fast, casual restaurant. We've got a vegan Subway sandwich. We've got a vegan pizza. There's Evidently, there's enough call for that, that it's all of a sudden something that, that businesses want to attract. They're seeing this, the trend. They're seeing the changes. Like Vegan food is the number one trend in food retail in the UK at the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Um, primarily fueled by the environmental movement, which with Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg is pushing. You know, she's vegan herself, and she often talks about reduction or removing meat completely from your diet. So I think people in high places are starting to get the message. WeWork, which is an international co-working space, banned or removed um, all forms of meat from their c company dinners or events and, and discouraged people from actually consuming and buying it on the premises, which is incredible, really, because they're quite a corporate company. You wouldn't expect something like that from them. But this kind of thing is happening more and more in companies. People are taking the ethical approach. And so there's a market for people who want to eat meat-free products. I think what, I think what we're, we're seeing, especially, I think the environmental point that Robbie just raised is very important. And, and, and so I guess what we can often do is we can, part of me feels a bit pessimistic in the sense, well, I say it's going to take ages. But actually, with what's happening with the environment, a kind of worryingly, but potentially positively, we don't have ages. And so I think what, what we're seeing now, especially in the UK, we know we don't really have much of this climate scepticism so much. We're a little bit more kind of like, yes, climate change is real, it's happening, and it's urgent, it's an emergency. And so a lot of people are, are, are switching to a plant-based diet simply because of what's happening to our planet. And so potentially because of the urgency of the emergency of climate change, we could see a significant meteoric rise of veganism in the next five to 10 years, potentially because it has to happen. And one of the things that Extinction Rebellion campaigns on is net carbon emissions by 2025. Well, that obviously means that we have to have a plant-based food system by 2025. And so fingers crossed Extinction Rebellion achieve that aim because in doing so, we would have a vegan UK by 2025 as well. So I kind of have to retract what I just said in that previous statement, which was it's going to take a long time because potentially it won't. And potentially we don't have the luxury of allowing it to take a long time. I guess we'll have to see what happens. If we can get the message through to enough people in, in high places, I think uh, it all comes down to education, doesn't it? Educating the masses. People uh, want to be told what to do, what to eat, how to live. You know, people need leadership. And I think this is where, you know, governments, you know, they. this is the trouble, trouble though with diet is it's behavioral change and people are afraid of specifically politicians are afraid of telling people what to do, how to live, how to eat. You know, that's kind of goes against how many people work in politics. But this has a, a wider impact to our entire planet. So I think that kind of rule should be placed aside for now. <laughs> and people really need to be not told what to do, but at least inspired 
to make changes. Yeah, it's an existential threat like we've never faced. And so sometimes the state has to take more control than potentially they'd like when it's the future at stake. And so you're right, diet and lifestyle changes are hard for people to kind of acknowledge and to, to consider. But when their future's at stake, then we have an extra, you know, an extra gambit to play at, you know, with the sense of it's your life as well. And I think the fact that we have the ethical and the health arguments as well, sometimes I think the environment, we, we hear these dire predictions and then we look out the window and everything looks okay. It's very hard to take that in. You know, we can believe it intellectually and somehow not maybe believe it enough to have it affect what goes into the shopping cart. But if we've got the animals and the health as well, Hopefully we can save the planet and do everything else that needs to be done. So what's the most important thing for people listening? Let's say they're already vegan. Then what's the most important next thing to do to save this planet? I think like what Ed said, get educated, learn the facts uh, and be ready with information when people ask. Um, I have notes on my phone or little cards. I'm actually developing a little booklet for people for their handbags or their satchels, which has got everything you need to know, all the books, all the films, all the blogs and groups and everything where people can go and gather information. And I think community is also a really important thing. If you feel isolated, get on Facebook, join a vegan Facebook group and build friendships and connections with people. Because if you are the only vegan in the village, um, you know, it can be overwhelming and you feel like you're not able to make any changes because you don't feel maybe brave enough to up a table in your local village on your own you know there might be another five vegans in your village you don't know <laughs> so building and forming those bonds i think is really really essential if you want to go out and influence people yeah i think education has got to be up there and i agree community building is so important and i think then there's a number of different things you could do i suppose you could join like some sort of street outreach group like anonymous for the voiceless perhaps but i think also place your strengths so look what what field do you work in what's your profession what can you present to the movement that potentially has not got as much exposure exposure as as it should do yet i don't know so i think you've got to place your strengths find something you enjoy because activism has to be sustainable in the sense of we don't want to burn out quickly um and we've got you know this is whatever the future has it's going to be a challenging prospect for many of us and so we need to have some sort of sustainable mindset when we begin and so i think finding a niche that you enjoy something that you're good at something that fills you with passion and then pursuing that as well as doing kind of more um i guess conventional modes of activism such as leafleting and outreach a nice combination of, of something you enjoy as well as something that, that's shown to be effective as well um kind of sets the standard for a sustainable mode of activism i think yeah that seems to work in just about every aspect of life you yeah. find your your strengths and what makes you happy and it seems to do a lot of good now you mentioned robbie uh, getting friends on facebook and i love the idea of friends on facebook but a lot of people in the vegan world run into a lot of really nasty people or people who maybe aren't nasty but they can let their nasty side come mm -hmm. out on <clears throat> facebook what do we do with this? Somebody was just telling me about um, posting something about restoring her health after coming to this way of life and other people were very angry that that's not part of veganism and she should have just not written that. 
Mm. The uh, the power of the block button is uh, oh. something that people really need to make more use of. And you know, we when a person sends us a message or comments, we feel compelled to reply or to defend ourselves. But actually, you know, what we must remember is that our social media is our social media. It's our space. We don't have to respond to every attack, to every um, confrontation. I think it's really important to remember that sometimes silence is the best medicine to aggressive behavior. Human beings have a tendency once there is no, if there's no other human being in front of them with a keyboard, to be able to just say and do whatever you want without any consequence. And I think this is the real dark side of social media is that it brings out that really aggressive, vicious, vitriolic kind of uh, quality that human beings sometimes all have when it comes to something like veganism, animal rights, uh, ethics, people, the misanthropy you talked about, Ed, is that it's there bubbling under the surface of a lot of people who've been vegan for not very long, but also some vegans who've been vegan for 30 plus years. I know a few vegans who've been a vegan for a long time and they're very angry. They're very frustrated that things are not changing. So use the block button. <laughs> I think the thing about social media is when you're in person with someone, there's, there's a barrier in place where you don't, you know, a lot of people overstep the mark in terms of like, you know, one-on-one -on -one dialogue, but on social media, you're, you're at home, you are safe and comfortable. And so that there's less of a barrier for you to kind of have to double think before you say something. And people react to emotion and they see something that makes them angry and they just want to type how they feel because it's a, it's a way of kind of getting that anger out of them in a way that's, that's, that doesn't kind of uh, conflict with their own safety. And so I think that's what social media does is it can create a, an area where people feel comfortable and safe to say things they would never say in person or do in person. I think, yeah, I think... I think that's why I like Plant Based News in the sense of it's uh it's it 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 shares well I shouldn't say it you guys share stuff that's that does make you feel optimistic and hopeful and so you can always take a step out of a group if it's a bit toxic to how you feel at the moment and surround yourself with positivity in the sense of follow people that make you feel this way and unfollow people if they don't make you feel that way and so and you know as as Robbie says you can always close the browser if you have to go out have a walk in nature have a coffee whatever you want to do and just take a breather and restore like another inner peace before before going back onto social media because it is a wonderful tool but with anything you've got those kind of binary opposites and so with great wonder there comes the great disappointment of social media i suppose and it's about finding that balance and that's why i like getting out there and having conversations on the street as well because you get out of that mindset and you, you feel fresh and rejuvenated and you can see that change is tangible when you have a conversation with someone and they say yeah you're right so I think it's about finding balance in your life and not being too reliant on social media, but also, you know, making sure you're on there to find friends and build a community and feel that you're part of something that's bigger than just the insular life that you have. Well, some of, of the arguing on social media that I see is, is ethical vegans versus health vegans. And it seems so strange because we're still such a small movement that uh, we want to go at each other just seems so counterproductive. Do you have that over here? Is there like a health oh, yeah. movement and an animal movement and oh, never yeah. the twins shall meet? Absolutely. There is a lot of discussion, debate, disagreement, you know, in the wider community, but also within groups as well. We've all, Ed and I both have experienced kind of disagreements with people on certain topics and things. You know, it's really challenging because we're all fighting for the same thing. We're all trying to create change. And it's frustrating when people kind of attack you or try and pull you down or point a finger or um, make assumptions about who you are, what you're doing, your motivations. You know, we've both been uh, this, this, the, the subject of all kinds of unnecessary um, attacks by people. And people, um, I think it, a lot of it comes down to um, ego and people's desire to be right and to to be right no matter what. 
and I think when when you when you see that, when you step back and you think, okay, that person is clearly suffering. Um, take the Buddhist perspective or maybe the Christian perspective. That person is clearly suffering. Um, it's not about me. I need to just step back because as I say like with the comments when someone attacks the the desire is to kind of is to attack back or to defend and I think a lot of the time is so important to not just when it's involving you others to try and encourage people to take a step back to kind of take a breath and walk away <laughs> I think was it Gandhi that said the greatest threat to a movement is the, is the movement itself in the sense of you know when you get and this I guess this is the um, a consequence of, of growth is the more people you have in a, in, in a movement or in or any kind of community, the more disparity of opinion, you know, and voices and the more conflict there will be because you've got a wider audience. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing that these discussions are having. It's, it's just a negative that they happen probably in the way that they do. But it's good that there are these opposing opinions because it means we're no longer in small pockets of fringe society where everyone kind of agrees with each other. Instead, we're a lot more mainstream and you have people from all walks of life of all different viewpoints and opinions. And so I guess it's framing. And so I find it very counterintuitive that we find such... Uh, such, And I guess it's not necessarily insignificant, but such... Um, redundant ideas to argue over at such an early stage of our growth and potentially in the future we can look at you know veganism involving all sorts of different components related to animals and, and animal usage aside from just food but for now if someone's identified as being plant-based and they're consuming veganism as long as they're not exploiting animals in other areas of life we have to just let bygones be bygones and just focus on what's important and what's relevant for now and hopefully through a maturity of the movement we can then start addressing things in a more productive manner i suppose yeah well i wanted to ask about the semantics as well because most of my time being a vegan was before the term plant-based existed and i get frustrated sometimes because people say plant-based and i don't even know what they mean because sometimes one person means I'm a super healthy vegan or I'm a sort of part-time vegetarian and plant-based covers both of them. And yet, Robbie, you chose that term for your publication. So talk about what plant-based means to you and how you see it in the world. Plant-based is purely diet. So it's purely what people eat. Um, a plant-based diet, as it says, is a diet that's made up of purely plants. Some people try and hijack that and say, I eat I plant-based, and then you see them eating eggs. That's not a plant-based diet. That's a vegetarian diet. <laughs> um, we're called plant-based news because we wanted a term that was more uh, uniform and neutral because vegan is associated with activism and uh, animal rights. And even though that's who we are, that's a big part of who we are, we wanted to reach a broader group of people and not uh, be vegan news. Because if it's vegan news, people who are not vegan may see that and go, well, I'm not vegan vegan so I'm not going to bother whereas plant-based maybe they don't know what it is they're interested they're drawn in they get the 95% health wellness nutrition environment and then they get the 5% reality that was the kind of strategy but in the UK plant-based has become associated with health and health food or healthy healthier food we talk about whole food plant-based diets and on, on plant-based news we speak to all the doctors and do interviews with all the doctors that advocate this way of eating which is a non or very low amounts of processed foods and, and foods and, and fruits and vegetables in their whole form without kind of refined oils or refined sugars and things like that so and then obviously then vegan is veganism which is the ethical way of living which is isn't technically a diet but it happens to be connected to plant-based diets because i'm a vegan and i eat a plant-based diet <laughs> yeah i guess like plant-based is food and i see veganism as being like a uh, like an ethical philosophical um ideology i suppose in the sense of it's a it's a, a lifestyle choice based on a certain set of principles rather than just you know a health thing yeah yeah 
Well, you are now a restaurateur because I guess you had so much uh, extra time on your hands. <laughs> so, I mean, for most people, just starting a restaurant is huge. It's the only thing they're doing in their lives. It takes them years to get the thing up and running. And I have a feeling you did it a little more quickly. What's your restaurant story? I guess I'd say did it maybe a little bit more naively or uh, even arrogantly in the sense of I didn't really know how much goes into into businesses and into restaurants and um yeah it was it was funny i did a talk at the vegan camp out 2017 i think it was yeah 2017 um and there was a family there who, who heard me speak and they had just all recently gone vegan and, and were fans of what i did and so they reached out to me and said look we want to help what you're doing um, with surge um and we want to do so in a way that that kind of creates a, a self-sufficient source of income for you so you're not just relying on, on, on necessary donations but you have a, a, a kind of a what we describe as maybe like some sort of steady passive income, which means you can plan for the future and do all these different things. So we spitballed ideas and came to this idea that a non-profit restaurant would be, would be good because it was in a way kind of a gesture of gratitude from me for the community and what they've done for me in terms of following me and sharing my stuff and, and kind of making sure the message that I kind of put forward gets out there. And so I wanted to express my gratitude in a way that meant that we could have a space where people could come and eat delicious vegan food and oh yeah, I eat delicious vegan food and at the same time you feel part of something bigger. So when they paid the bill, they knew that it was going towards activism. So that's the long term goal and say so it takes a while to get there, we've realized, and there's bumps and hurdles along the way. So that's the future plan is to have a, a mode of income that, that means we can make campaigns, open animal sanctuary, um, pay people's wages to do edits and videography and all these kind of different things. Oh, that's so exciting. So Unity Diner, where is it? It's in Hoxton, Old Street. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. I'd love to get over there. I can't believe that we're nearly out of time. Um, Robbie, Plant-Based News, Earthling Ed, you guys are amazing and absolutely changing the world and living very classy quality lives too. I think sometimes the idea is, well, I'm changing the world. I can't take care of myself. And yet, I would like to hang out with you even if you weren't changing the world, but I'm glad that you are. So since this is a pre-record, I don't know what my closing phrase is now, so I'm just going to be classic and say, God bless you, eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.